This program is rated D for dog. It contains sniffing, scratching and doggy themes. Hello and welcome to the Top Dog Podcast where we meet people who do amazing things for and with dogs. My name is Adrian Plitzkog. Let's see what's in it for you and for your dog. Um, you know, I wrote that book because I had fostered 100 dogs and I couldn't believe that there was still such a huge number of dogs in danger and still needing rescued. And um, I kind of got to the point where I had had a very difficult dog and I wrote about her in the book, probably one of the hardest, if, definitely the hardest at that point. Um, and so I started to think, I don't want to do this forever. Am I going to be rescuing dogs when I'm 80? I can't continue to foster forever. So I decided that I needed to go see what was happening. So she did and she witnessed some heart-wrenching moments in dog shelters in the south of the United States. The American author and dog rescue advocate Cara Sue Achtberg. We will talk to her about her latest book, 100 Dogs and Counting, One Woman, 10,000 Miles on a Journey into the Heart of Shelters and Rescues. At the end, and I can actually really say that he was bigger star than Jason Momoa. Every day when we arrived, in my, my dog's name is Mr. Big, and everybody just screamed when they saw him, and Mr. Big is back, and <laughs> so nobody did that about Jason Momoa. <laughs> <laughs> Bente Dubnitsky, the proud mum of the movie dog star Mr. Big, bigger than the international star Jason Momoa from the movie Aquaman. This is one of the many movies and commercials Bente's dogs are performing in and Bente will tell us all the gossip. This is the paddock. I remember it. The tornado carried me all the way across from that big boulder over there. Since dogs do not have the best eyesight, Stelzer could only recognise a black dot in the far distance. The very end of the paddock seemed to melt together with the sky. She took a deep breath and continued on. A big and challenging, maybe dangerous journey lays ahead of Pirate, the barking kookaburra, and his foster mum, Stelzer, the dog. This is episode number 13 in our audiobook series about the lost kookaburra and his friends, a bunch of kind and funny dogs. Come, sit, stay. Kara Sue Achterberg is an American author, a writer, novelist, blogger and dog rescue advocate. She also teaches workshops on intentional living and creative writing. Kara Achterberg lives in New Freedom, Pennsylvania, with her family, with chickens, horses and a constant stream of foster dogs. She has a couple of best-selling novels in her pocket and recently published a new book, 100 Dogs and Counting. In the subtitle, it says it's about one woman, 10,000 miles on a journey into the heart of shelters and rescues. Kara Achterberg, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, what does the title of your new book suggest that you have been a foster dogman to 100 dogs? Yeah, so now it's 175 dogs. That's why you called it and counting. That's right. So <laughs> yeah. a sequel is sort of uh, in the already in the drawer. We'll see. I don't know. 
that's between um, my agent, my publisher, and me. We're talking about things, but nothing like nothing like that. Now, 175 dogs, that is a lot of dog of I don't know how many years. And uh, I will ask you questions about that a bit later. But I want to know now, is that actually what inspired you to write that book, that you looked after so many dogs? Um, you know, I wrote that book because I had fostered 100 dogs and I couldn't believe that there was still such a huge number of dogs in danger and still needing rescued. And um, I kind of got to the point where I had had a very difficult dog and I wrote about her in the book, probably one of the hardest, if definitely the hardest at that point. Um, and so I started to think, I don't want to do this forever. Am I going to be rescuing dogs when I'm 80? I can't continue to foster forever. So I decided that I needed to go see what was happening because, you know, if we had fostered a hundred dogs and we hadn't made a dent, then obviously there's a bigger problem. <laughs> I don't, and so I traveled to the shelters. I started going down to the shelters, um, meeting the people that were there, trying to figure out why, where is this endless stream of dogs coming from? And that's, that's why I wrote the book because what I discovered when I was down there, I just realized if I didn't know that when I was up to my eyeballs in foster dogs, then the average person doesn't realize how many dogs are still um, endangered. Now, in your book, you say that you discovered things in these shelters that broke your heart. Can you tell us what you found, maybe without breaking our hearts, if possible? You know, that was the challenge in writing the book, was to tell the story without breaking hearts. Because, you know, everyone says, oh, I don't want to read a book about a dog. It will make me cry. Um, the heartbreaking stuff for me yeah, you do meet dogs that you know aren't going to ever make it out of that shelter. So that's that's really hard. But many times there's a reason for that, um, for that particular dog. But a lot of dogs live out their lives in some shelters. So it's it's hard. And one in some shelters, there are dogs that aren't going to make it out because uh, maybe they're dog aggressive. Maybe um, they've broken down from the stress of living in a shelter. There's, you know, they have health issues. But sometimes dogs that are just sitting there on cement floors for years, literally for years. That to me is so heartbreaking that, you know, they very few shelters in the South of the US, um, in the rural areas especially, very few of them have the money or the personnel for these dogs to get very much attention or engagement. Um, they don't have toys. They don't have beds. They, they don't get treats. Sometimes they, a lot of times actually, they don't get dewormed and they don't have flea and tick preventative. So there's, you know, it's not a happy life. And to me, I, I don't know which is worse, you know, for them to be humanely euthanized or to, to suffer for so many years. So that's, that was sort of the heartbreak for me, you know, but the flip side is the people down there, are, there are so many people working really hard to try to make it better. It's just, it's an enormous problem. I think we all know or have seen pictures from dog shelters, overcrowded dog shelters. It seems to be a universal problem, an issue. Uh, do you know where that comes from? Is America different in that regard than the rest of the world? Is there, why do people get rid of their dogs? No, I don't know if the US is different because I haven't been to shelters in other countries. And I know... You know, there are places where it's far worse, um, but in the, in the American South, 
uh, it's a culture down in many places where they do not spay and neuter their pets. Um, they let them run loose. So you combine those two things, dogs that are not contained and dogs that are not spayed and neutered, and you end up with a lot of extra dogs. Um, and then there is, a, you know, there are other little factions of it. There are people who want to breed their dogs, like backyard breeders, especially uh, breeding pit bulls um, and chihuahuas. It seem to be the shelters are drowning in chihuahuas and pit bulls. Um, and so I think that, I, I don't know if that's universal, I don't know if that's everywhere, but just the not spaying and neutering, and then just this attitude of, I wouldn't bring this animal into my, you know, they don't bring the animals into their house. They're not family members. You know, a lot of dog people think of their dogs as a family member, and we can't imagine making our dog live in the yard. But uh, it's the flip side down there. there are many places where they could never imagine, you know, they just as soon bring a donkey in the house. They're not going to bring, they wouldn't bring the dogs in the house. And you know, so that creates a different situation, in, I think, in the rural South in the U.S. Has the corona pandemic made a difference? In, a, in Australia, as an example, as the country went into lockdown in late March, it became more and more difficult to adopt a rescue dog and even fostering a dog. People being locked into their homes wanted a companion and got themselves a dog. Was or is that also the case in the U.S.A.? Oh, that was absolutely the case in the beginning, you know, March, April, May, uh, there were dogs, you know, a lot of shelters emptying out, especially in the Northeast and in the cities. Uh, and, and also in the South, they were definitely feeling that, you, but there were also places that the, uh, the government run shelters, especially public shelters where they were just, they were shutting down. And, and so any dog that couldn't get out to be fostered or adopted or moved by a rescue was being euthanized. It um, didn't happen in huge numbers because so many people stepped up to help. So that was a wonderful thing. But now here we are, what, six months later, and we have, we had three months where there were no spay and neuter surgeries because that was an elective surgery. So that has set us back, I don't even know how long. So there are, you know, kittens by the bazillions, it feels like, in the shelters um, and plenty of unwanted puppies were born. Um, and, and now as it drags on and people are struggling economically, I just touched base with a couple shelters, one in Mississippi and one in um, North Carolina and another in South Carolina to find out, you know, how is it, how is it now? And now they're seeing a ton of dogs coming in. In North Carolina, I was told the numbers are right back where they were prior to this, same number of dogs coming in. August is a huge month for them every year. Um, people, you know, getting rid of the dogs, I guess, before they go back to school. I don't know why that timing is what it is, but now, you know, people can't take care of their families, so they can't take care of their dogs. So they are dumping dogs, so the shelters are filling right back up in many of the rural places. Now you're pointing the finger at the crisis itself. So who do you think should actually look, uh, read that book and look at it, look at the problem, look at the crisis and try to find a solution? Who should do that? I think it's our responsibility. I think it's, I think our government should be, and just like we, we pay, you know, public, we pay taxes and, and so we get services like snow removal or, you know, trash pickup or whatever that is that we're paying for in our services, um, police protection. We domesticated dogs. I mean, that, that's on the human race. We're the ones that did it. And now that we leave these dogs to fend for themselves and kill them because they're a nuisance. And, and so I feel like it's our responsibility. And a, and a well-run shelter also should not cost any government a lot of money. A well-run shelter 
should be doing progressive programs that have, have a foster program, a volunteer program, has uh, a good system of vetting the animals and becoming a community resource so that they can offer low cost spay and neuters, so that they can offer training help, so that they can offer economic help when it's needed. You know, when they, when someone's surrendering a dog because they can't afford dog food, well, that's easy. That's an easy fix. You know, there's a lot of, you know, I just feel like if the government were to initially fund shelters and put progressive leadership in charge of those shelters, it's not going to be an expensive thing. Adoption fees are going to, and, and fundraising and uh, using foster homes and volunteers to work with the animals, that those are not, those are, those are money makers, not, you know, they're not going to, they're going to help fund the shelter itself. So I don't, you know, but if you don't even have a building and you don't have a government that cares about that, um, it it's really makes it tough. I mean, there are shining star rescues out there that are managing to do some of this and be self-sufficient, but it would be a lot easier if they had some kind of consistent, you know, regulations and systems in place to do it. We could uh, call your book sort of a, a contribution to the solution of the problem, but also you are you fostering dogs an individual like me or any other dog lover would that be already a lot if we went out there and fostered dogs and try to help find a new home for the dog would that contribute to this to the solution of the problem oh absolutely i mean fostering is the answer in so many ways because a dog in a shelter is suffering no matter what even the best shelter it's not a good life for a dog. It's not, not a place where they're gonna, you're going to see their best selves. So it's already automatically right there, harder for them to get adopted because they're stressed. Um, they may not medically be 100%. There's just a lot of reasons why. But in a foster home, you get to know that dog. You get to know, like when we have a dog, I, and someone, for instance, this little cattle dog I have right now, she's as smart as a whip. She's super cool. She's a little intense. Um, she would definitely kill your cat. These are all things I could tell you, but if she was in a shelter, you would just see that she's really pretty. In the shelter, you'd see this really pretty dog that um, barks a lot. And I don't know, and, and I can manage her and I can tell someone else how to manage her. And she is a once in a lifetime cool dog that you could do all kinds of things with. But left in a shelter, I don't know that she would ever get adopted. So fostering, I think is the answer. In fact, down the road, I think, you know, in, in Kara's dream world, um, we would have, fostering would be the when the dogs would come into the shelter they get evaluated they get sent to foster homes and that's how it worked for me and that's again why I say I don't think it would cost that much for for governments to pay for shelters because if you use fostering well and if you're a community resource and if you you know are spaying and neutering then I think you get this problem under control pretty easily it's just right now it's scattershot it's impossible to do it Let's follow your example. Let's foster a dog. You have, you've done that 175 times. So how easy or difficult is it or how rewarding? Um, it depends on the dog, but uh, the, I foster for a rescue, an all-breed rescue, and they have really good partnerships with the shelters that they work with. So we can pretty much trust the evaluation. So I have a little idea of a dog, what the dog's going to be like before it gets to my house. And as a foster, and I think this is true of anywhere you foster, you choose what dog you're going to foster. You're not just given a dog, given a dog. So I know what's going to get along with my personal dogs. Um, so I don't think it's that hard. You just, it's like having, my kids always said, it's like, we get a new dog every two weeks when they were younger. They thought it was really cool. You know, so some of the dogs they love and they were their best friends. And then other dogs, they were like, when are we getting a new one? You know, they would be tired of it. 
because um, every dog's different. They're all individuals. And so, you know, it's, I don't, I don't think it's that hard if, if you're fostering for a good organization that's giving you good support. Um, it's, it's actually really fun. Most of the time, I would say it's really fun. Yeah, they're occasionally, if you do 175 dogs, you're going to have a couple hard ones in there that are going to challenge you. But by and large, I can count on my hand the number of dogs that I really struggled with. Most of them, they're just dogs. They're, you know, they're fun and they're easy. And, and, and um, I don't know, it always feels like a privilege. And it's always a shock to me too. Like, how did this amazing dog end up in a shelter? I think that a lot of the dogs that we have. Have you ever fallen in love with the dog and just didn't want to give it away? And it's still with you? Or has been with you for a long time? Um, well, you know, in the beginning, it was every single dog, we would have to have this conversation with the family, like, why we're not keeping this dog. And it was always because if we keep it, we can't, we can't get another. Um, eventually, I did. Actually, in 2019, I adopted a dog that I met in a dog pound in Tennessee. And I wanted to see her through. I mean, she should have died in that dog pound because the dog pound is the worst place to land in the United States, in Western Tennessee, I would say. Um, not every dog pound in Western Tennessee. I've actually come to meet some pretty surprisingly awesome ones, but um, most of them, they're just holding pens. They literally put the dogs in the pen. They hold them for their legal stray hold, which is, I think, three to five days, depending on your county, and then they have them killed. And so I met her in that situation, and um, it was just heartbreaking to see her like that. And I wanted to see her all the way through. And she's a little pit bull mix, and she's incredibly shy, so I knew she'd be really hard to get adopted. And so we kept her. So that's my fanny girl. She was she was hanging around here with me, but yeah, it's hard. It's you know making that decision every time is is harder on some people. But if you look at it as like this is my and I've always done it. I've always done this. Is I look at it. This is my my job is to get prepare this dog for their family. I'm not their family. I'm like a babysitter. Mm-hmm. I'm just helping them um, and keeping them safe until their family shows up. In the introduction, I said that you're teaching workshops on intentional living. Can you please give us a short overview of what that actually means? And had the 175 foster dogs so far an influence or impact on your teaching or your view of life or your view of the world? Um, so intentional living was, I used to write about um, organic, um, organic my, my youngest son, who is now 18, um, when he was a toddler, was diagnosed with an autoimmune disorder, that um, alopecia areata. And it's not treatable, and they don't know what causes it, but they do know that uh, there's an environmental trigger. It's a genetic, there's a genetic piece to it, but there's an environmental trigger. So as a mom, as a young mom, I, you know, I took that and ran, and I made our entire lives, I took everything toxic out of our world. And this was before there was organic grocery, you know, like a organic stuff in the grocery store. So I had to get to know farmers. I had to go get stuff. I mean, it's probably, I think you guys are probably further along in this in Australia than we are here. Um, Finding people, the people who actually make the food and getting the food. And then, um, you know, we raise chickens and we have a bazillion gardens. And so I was learning how to do all that, make my own yogurt, make cheese, make um, peanut butter, make whatever, ice cream, um, so that the kids would have the stuff that they expected. And trying to um, take all any kind of uh, toxic toxin out of our environment. So I spent a few years doing that and I wrote a lot about it and I wrote articles and I freelanced. And so people kept asking me, well, how do you do that? How do you, you know, make yogurt? How do you make bread? How do you, you know, can canning was, you know, everybody wanted to know how to can and we were 
we were canning a ton of stuff because we needed to have it year round. Um, so I started teaching that. And then from there, I called it intentional living because it's not just what you eat. It's, it's how you treat the world. It's how you treat other people. It's how um, you spend your time. It's where you spend your money, all of those things. And so I wrote a, a book about it um, and self-published it because at the time I was a freelancer and I'm trying to be a novelist and I didn't have a clue how to, how to get truly published. So I self-published that book um, and started teaching workshops. And that was really fun meeting people and, um, and the stuff that to me was like so basic, they had, you know, they just didn't, we're so far removed and it hasn't been that many generations, but you know, from when we had to grow and make and process our own food, but people are very far removed from it now. So it was a lot of that. And just talking about, you know, being, being better to this earth and better to our communities, better to ourselves and our families. And so that's what that was about. And the dogs kind of came along and they did sidetrack me a bit because, <laughs> um, they, it, there wasn't as much time, you know, and they interrupt a lot, but we still do that. We were just canning yesterday morning, <laughs> all morning. So, so you're saying this is the only impact the dogs had on your intentional living that they disturbed you every now and then? I would, there would be more behind it, wouldn't there? Yeah. I mean, I say that, I say that, you know, off the cuff, but, um, they, they also teach us to be very intentional because dogs are present. They're, you know, there's no, like, they're not worried about the future or the past. Well, some are a little worried about the past if they've had a bad past, but they're so present. And they, and, and also I know that what I do, how I react is going to affect this little dog that's just come to my house from a shelter who may emotionally be really, really um, distraught and vulnerable. And so I have to be very intentional about, like, for instance, if you have a young dog, where you leave your shoes, <laughs> where you leave whatever. Um, the dog I have right now is highly competitive, and um, she will definitely start a fight over a toy or a treat. So I have to be really intentional about where, you know, how I interact with her and the other dogs and where everybody is. And so I do, you know, they do, dogs make you be present. And I think that is definitely a piece of living intentionally is being present in, in what you're dealing with right now, right in front of you. 100 dogs and counting, we can say 175 dogs and counting, but that's not the right title. You say it again, 100 dogs and counting, a book by Cara Sue Achterberg. It's available in every bookshop. If not, then definitely online and maybe on your website, which is www.carawrites.com. Cara, thank you very much for your insight into, into foster dogs world. Thank you. Now, imagine glamour, glory, fame, movie star, paparazzis smiling at flashing lights, admiration and applause from all sides. No, not you, but your dog. Bente Dubnitsky in Queensland, Australia, works in the glitzy, ritzy movie world thanks to her dogs, which she has trained to be movie stars. But how glamorous and glorious is that world really? Let's find out. Hello, Bente. Hello, Adrian. You've got this gift talking, communicating with dogs, and you make big, great use of that gift. You're actually uh, training movie dogs, or so you have dogs uh, that are actors and actresses. Tell us more about that. So how does that work? So, so you've got how many dogs? 
four dogs in the meantime. I just recently got a little puppy. He's now only 10 weeks old. Um, yeah, I bought him hopefully as a new future dog uh, movie star. Um, he's a little Jack Russell Terrier. And the reason I bought him, it's maybe I never was really interested in Jack Russell Terriers. I like the looks of them, but um, I always had bigger dogs before in my life. I was actually really into white German Shepherds who were called Swiss Shepherds for a while. Um, but for the movie world, I would say that every single time when I heard from my agency, they were always looking for a Jack Russell or a Jack Russell cross. And so in this time in particular, I picked the breed that the movie world would like and not so much what I wanted. So it's maybe a bit of a, of a um, how to say, more like a business decision this time and not like, I love them the same, but don't get me wrong, but yeah, it's, it's definitely all the time that they want Jack Russell's on film set. And I would say that's in particular because they are so happy and so wiggly and so, yeah, not easy to train, but they are very trainable and very active. And yeah, so just recently finished a movie or a couple of months ago and one of my dogs is actually the, the hero dog in this movie so it's a romantic movie that gets aired on netflix it's called romance on the menu romance on the menu okay i see yeah what i always get asked by people about the film work because they approach me a lot like oh how did you get that and how how did you end up doing that um my dog is super pretty and um can you ask maybe if they ever look for a dalmatian can you ask them if they want to have use my dog um uh, i have a really good story just from last week um my that was for a little tv commercial here and they were looking for a kelpie dog so it was all like in a farm scene and they wanted a kelpie dog and i've got a one of my dogs is a border collie kelpie cross but he looks a little bit more like a short hair border collie not so much like a kelpie but he's very well trained and he would have done the job very well but the the clients of the um of, for the timmy commercial they wanted a proper um, australian looking kelpie so and they actually booked an eight months old kelpie for the job my dog was booked as a backup dog just in case the other Kelpie doesn't work out so and then it ended up that the lady who owned the dog she couldn't come so and they said oh you're going anyway can you take this dog with you and I said oh, okay is he fully trained and they said oh yeah he can do whatever they wanted for the script and I took the dog and it didn't do what it was supposed to do so and I got a little bit like mm, I was like I knew how well, my dogs could have done the same scene. So um, people always think it's quite easy being on film set, but it's absolutely not. Like, for example, if your dog can sit and stay and you are in front of them and you hold maybe up a treat and they just sit for maybe even 30 seconds, awesome. But what the dog has to do on film set is sit on the spot till they are ready till the actors are set till the lady is ready with with fixing the hair again putting makeup on wipe off some sweat 
then the camera people are just in front of the dog. They're just moving stuff. They have the clapperboard. They call out the number on this clapperboard, and then you have to go sometimes even out of sight. You can't be seen in the scene at all. So your dog still has to sit there and can take up to three, four, five minutes under huge distractions. And this is what people have to train the dog. So it doesn't, it, it is not enough that the dog can sit for 30 seconds with you in front of him holding a treat above his head. You're actually shattering uh, dreams of many dog owners now. It happened to me once that I uh, could witness uh, a film scene. I was on set and it, and it seemed to me it's more, everybody thinks it's an exciting thing to watch uh, how a movie gets uh, shot, but it's more like, as you explained before, it's more like a waiting game because everybody has to be ready and that does take time. So you actually uh, train your dog to be patient. That's uh, all it needs and maybe look good as well, but mainly to be patient and to be very, very, very obedient. It's either long, long waits and you never know when your scene is, is next or in case, now what I just said before, the dog that has got the, the hero, the major main role in it then you're busy ongoing for up to 12 hours a day so then you just in every scene and you just yeah that the dogs have to get used to that as well and um what i do is i'm not training the dogs particular for the film work my dogs are actually every day trained by my lifestyle i take them everywhere i'm start very early taking them to cafes and um, when I say I have four dogs, imagine you have four untrained dogs and take them into a cafe. That, like How many leashes would be wrapped around chairs and tables and if they would start jumping up on waitresses or other guests or start barking at people walking past with, the, with their dogs or kids on skateboards. I do that in my everyday life. I just teach them to come and, and lay down. And, and um, yeah, that's my main thing. My dogs are just really calm around me and with me. Before you said often you can't be seen in the scene, so you have to be off camera. I assume you, you were talking about yourself. And it also means that you have to be quiet because the sound is being recorded at the same time. So how do you do that with your dogs? You can't just yell at your dog and say, sit and stay. Do you use sign language? Yes, so it depends often on what they just, what type of scene they're going to do. Sometimes I'm allowed to. Um, talk to them and, and sometimes it's really necessary even if it's a really difficult scene but most of the time I actually have to teach them doing things in the distance um, and on, on hand signal only or on my voice. We were filming for a um, TV series that hasn't come out yet but one of my dogs is um, behind a swimming pool fence and he's finding a dead body in the in the swimming pool so and he's just running from a to b like a, a, along the fence line and is barking excessively to tell the owner that he saw a dead body in there and so where i had to be in this particular one because i couldn't be seen but they filmed with a drone from above 
and so they didn't know really where to put me. So I ended up sitting in a in a in a swimming pool little house. They didn't use you as the dead body. That would have been. <laughs> 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 no. So yeah, but I was sitting in this little house and the dog couldn't see me at all. And this one in particular, I could only tell him with my voice what to do. Then again, if people now start imagine that seems a little bit so the dog can't see you at all and you're sitting in this little house, your voice sounds completely different because it's 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 numbed by the by the by the doors. And so and you still need to tell the dog to run from A to B and bark excessively so that was a difficult one it was actually mm. one of the more challenging one but he did quite well but the dead body messed up a few times. <laughs> now all the people stream that you have shattered with uh with uh with your insight into every day's life of a film shooting i sort of uh, get the sense that shooting a movie is not only pure fun it is hard work as well now the other element is catering you know um because you are more or less uh trapped on the set you can't just go out into a cafe and have lunch you have to be on set often it's somewhere in the desert or up on the mountain so you the food the food is being brought to you so-called catering that's okay for you as the dog owner what about your dogs do are they looked after do they get the special food delivered or how do you cope with that so the the food situation or the treats we call them for the for the dogs is um 100 up to the owner um on film set nobody ever is allowed even to approach my dogs or other dogs on film sort or other animals so they really make sure that they are they really treat them a little bit as service dogs do you know the ones they they walk with the with a blind person for example so they are really, really make sure that the dog is actually only doing what I'm telling it to do and it's ready for the scene. So usually when, when you have dogs on film set, everybody comes over and wants to pet them and can I hug them and can I have a photo and can we do a selfie? And it can be quite disturbing for the dogs because yeah, it's hard work for them already. I actually, because it is work and what I always say is like, I get paid really well that day. So, and I don't want to be a stingy person and just feed him dry biscuits. So he should be paid as well as I am on film sets. So I usually bring really things. They are extra special, high value to them, which is definitely beef, steak or barbecue chicken. Um, I have an air fryer where I normally put a beef liver or chicken liver in. And yeah, I have a variety of, of dog treats with me for the day. And yeah, the catering, sometimes what we get for lunch, they often have like chicken and then I take a few leftovers and feed that to the dogs later. And yeah, they're quite spoiled on the film set too. Well, they after all are movie stars and uh, big stars on film sets today, they do get a special treatment. They have their own camper van, they have their own dresser, they have their own makeup artist. Is that the same with dogs too? Do they get their own camper van? <laughs> not not for particular for what the level we are at at the moment. It's not like a like a Hollywood movie. So at the moment, like what the, the most I we had maybe was one of my dogs is in the movie Aquaman, which is a big Hollywood 
blockbuster movie and there was a lady she was so it was a co-production with with america and they had an american lady um flown in um and she was only there to look after the dogs so she had to make sure they had enough water they had enough rest in between they had enough uh yeah that they felt well that they weren't stressed panting or sweating or salivating or anything so she just followed us the whole day and just took notes on that the dogs were actually really well looked after which they are they're super spoiled on this. Mm. <laughs> can you maybe remind us uh, which scene that was your dog was in that movie aquaman i can't remember seeing a dog that's a funny story haha -ha. <laughs> <laughs> so i was on film set for two weeks up to 12 hours a day and it was one scene they filmed in that time and it was it was all playing around um a, a fountain so the main actor jason momoa he's just talking to amber hurst and i think he's giving her a little book around the fountain and there's it's all playing with italian people and they all sit in the cafe and chatting so my dog is walking with one of the italian teenage girls and the only thing you can see is her, her walking him behind the fountain and you can't see him. <laughs> <laughs> so right. I know where he is and I can see that she's holding the leash, but that's it. <laughs> <laughs> so when I was there 14 days and I was like treated like a, and I think at the end, and I can actually really say that he was bigger um, star than Jason Momoa for all the people in this thing. Every day when we arrived, and my, my dog's name is Mr. Big, and everybody just screamed when they saw him, and Mr. Big is back, and so nobody did that about Jason Momoa. <laughs> so yeah, right. he was a big, yeah, he became a star on film set, and you can't even see him. And how did Mr. Big feel like when you watched the movie then together? I don't know if you watched the movies together with your dogs, and then Mr. Big is waiting for his big scene, and you can't only see the leash. How did he or she <laughs> react <Yeah>. to that? <laughs> <laughs> I normally have them sitting on the couch with me anyway, so yeah. Um, I actually have to say that, maybe I shouldn't say that, but Aquaman is not really the type of movies I would usually watch. So it took me a couple of months and then we watched it and then I just scrolled back or like um, rewind it and it was still, I thought, where's the dog? <laughs> I couldn't believe it that I got paid for 14 days, that many hours on film set and God, yeah. didn't make it. <laughs> now you make it sound easy again, uh, movie work, but it's not as we found out now. Yeah, this one was actually one of the easiest we ever had because you only had to walk with the girl for 14 days. Like, yeah. it was, that was it. It was then at the end, I would say, the repetition that got the dock a little bit because it was just like repetitively and again and again and again. And hmm. this is maybe another one I had to add to what I said before, that they uh, have to be so good in, in, a, in a sit stay or in a drop stay, but they also need to have the urge to love what they're doing and that they repeat it. Like sometimes they repeat a scene 20, 30 times and the dog has to do it over and over and over again. Now, I want to still raise some hopes for some people. How did you get into, the, into this business? How did it all happen? I didn't start with movies. So my first 
jobs were actually TV commercials with this normally a one day or half a day filming and they want one particular trick. This is how I started. I, um, the trick we had to do on, on for this particular one was to cut a hole in a, in a cardboard and the dog had to learn to poke the head through. And that's all he had to do in that scene. And then slowly build up from there. Bente Dubnitsky, you've got a website, bentesdogtraining.com.au. You're based in Queensland, Australia. So whoever wants to uh, raise a movie star, you probably are the best address to go to. And we're looking forward to the movie Romance on the Menu. It's a movie on Netflix. And is it Mr. Big in that movie or who is in that, that movie? That is starring Mr. Big and his, his name in the movie is Spetch. Spetch. All right, we'll look out for him. And um, thank you very much again. Thank you, Adrian. Time for a new episode of the audiobook Pirate the Barking Kookaburra. We are up to chapter 13. If you have joined us today and have no idea what has happened so far in this story, then I recommend you better catch up. You can go back to the Top Dog podcast episode number 18, where we started with the audiobook with the first chapter. It's worthwhile because it is an interesting top dog episode anyway. We talked to Calvin MacDonald, the manager of the beer company BrewDog in Brisbane. BrewDog is offering its staff maternity leave for dog owners, so-called paternity leave. But now back to the audiobook Pirate the Barking Kookaburra. What do we know so far? Pirate, a lost bird who suffers amnesia, is being looked after by a bunch of dogs, Stelzi, Ajax and Hoover, and the cat Buddha. As he grows up, he realises that he's neither a dog nor a real bird, because he can't fly, but he knows how to bark. During a thunderstorm, Pirate has a déjà vu moment and remembers vaguely the journey that brought him to the dogs in the first place. Stelze, his foster dog mum, has decided to take him home. It's a journey full of challenges. Comfortably on Steltzer's neck, his claws firmly wrapped around her collar. Steltzer carefully waded through the high bracken down the steep slope to the bottom of the gorge. At the big pond, she stopped for a drink. The whole time, Pirate was staring back at the top of the gorge. What are you looking at? Nothing, said Pirate quickly but he was lying. Actually, he was keeping a secret he shared with Buddha, Ajax and Hoover. Back at the farmhouse, they had promised him, behind Steltzer's back, to follow in secret. 
Somewhere on the way, they would come out of hiding. We'll walk the rest of the way with you, mate. Whether Stelzer likes it or not. After all, we are family. We have to stick together. Once Stelzer had satisfied her thirst, she slowly made her way up the cliff on the opposite side of the gorge. At the top and out of the cooling shade, she stopped again, looking in awe at what lay in front of her. This is the paddock. I remember it. The tornado carried me all the way across from that big boulder over there. Since dogs do not have the best eyesight, Stelzer could only recognise a black dot in the far distance. The very end of the paddock seemed to melt together with the sky. She took a deep breath and continued on. The grass was high and prickly, its tallest tips towering over Stelzer's neck. Pirate spread his wings and felt the stroking of the grass tips under his feathers. They tickled. He imagined it was the wind stroking his wings while he was flying. Every now and then, Stelzer stopped and looked back, pricking her ears. What are you looking at? Oh, I'm just checking that everything's all right. Stelzer continued walking very slowly, as if trying not to break the long grass. She carefully put one paw in front of the other. After a few steps, she stopped and looked back, again pricking her ears. This time, she was sniffing the air too. What are you sniffing at? Is someone following us? Oh, no nonsense. Nobody is following us. But Pirate became excited all of a sudden. He let go of Stelzer's collar and hopped to the very end of her back. It's him. It's Ajax. I know it. He's followed us. He wants to come with us. Better not. I told him to stay back and guard the farmhouse. Then it's Hoover. <laughs> He'd never walk that far. Then it's Buddha. Oh, he hates long walks. But they promised. Oh? What did they promise? Nothing. Anyway, then it could only be Tiger. How do you know Tiger? I met her in the backyard. She said she follows me wherever I go. She wants to play with me. Stelzer ordered Pirate to hop off and sit down in front of her. She started to tell him off, like furious mothers do with their naughty children. Never, ever play with Tiger. She is a vicious snake. She's dangerous. She only pretends to play with you. She actually chases you. She hypnotises you. She takes away your will until you can't move anymore. Not even your little claws. And then... She bites you. She poisons you with her long teeth. And soon after, you will die. How soon? Three hours. That's very soon. After he had promised to never play with a snake, especially Tiger, he climbed back onto Stelzer's neck. She continued to walk under the hot sun through the vast paddock the boulder still far away. Her tongue was hanging out, nearly touching the ground. She was panting so loudly and heavily, 
that Pirate could not hear the flies buzzing around his head anymore. When she again stopped walking and looked back to sniff the air, Pirate started to worry. I'm scared. Is Tiger following us? Nobody is following us. I'm only making sure that no other snake is nearby. Snakes like to be in the high grass. It protects them from their enemies because they can't be seen. That's why I walk slowly. That way I won't step on one by accident. After many more stops, they finally reached the boulder. Steltzer was exhausted. Oh, the heat is killing me. We need a rest. On the other side of the boulder, Steltzer lay down in a shady spot, squeezing her exhausted body against the cool rock. She told Pirate to stay on her neck, but she had hardly finished her sentence before she fell asleep in an instant. Pirate closed his eyes and tried to sleep too, but he was not tired enough. He decided to stretch his legs and explore the boulder. He hopped to the other side and saw a mouse rushing into the high grass. Wait for me. Don't run away. Let's play. He rushed into the high grass too, but quickly lost sight of the mouse. Where are you? There was a rustle coming from behind a thick bundle. Pirate was convinced that the mouse was hiding. Let's play hide and seek. I have to find you. Slowly and carefully, like Steltzer did in the paddock, he put one foot in front of the other. After a couple of steps, he was close enough and jumped behind the bundle. I've got you! He cheered, but stopped short as he found himself standing right in front of Tiger. His heart fell all the way down to his knees. I've got you. Hide and seek is my favourite game. I'm very good at it. Stelta said that you only pretend to, to play. Pirate started, staring into her black and bottomless eyes. Stelta said that you are vicious. And dangerous, I know. She slid around Pirate, twice, fast and without a sound. Now he was trapped. This time you won't escape from me. I suppose you know what is going to happen to the naughty little kookaburra that you are. Stelza said that you have poisonous teeth. Well, well, well. You paid attention to her lecture. You are a good student. What else did Stelza say? That your poison will kill within three hours. Oh, how right she is. But she didn't tell you that you will die a slow and painful death. Please don't bite me. Oh, don't worry. I won't let you suffer. I'll be fast. I am going to swallow you in one piece. She hissed and ripped her mouth wide open. Pirate stared in awe at the two long and pointy teeth. He was frightened and screamed, or rather barked, as loud as he could. Ruff. Tiger stopped short. What the holy snake was that? She was puzzled, 
ogling at Pirate as if she could not figure out who or what he was. Pirate jumped at the chance and started running. He staggered through the thick grass and barked and peeped and screamed at the same time. Tiger chased after him. She snapped at him again and again, wanting to bite him. Help! Stop! Freeze! You understand? Pirate ran for his life, out of the high grass, around the boulder, to the shady spot where Stelzer lay. Stelzer was already up on her legs. Hide behind me, she told Pirate, and jumped forward into Tiger's path. But before she could bark at her, Tiger sunk her teeth into her paw. Stelzer fell onto her back, yelping and throwing her legs around. Tiger held on for a while, wiggling and swirling her long body as if she was a worm pierced on a fishing hook. Eventually she let go and was catapulted through the air. She plunged into the paddock where she disappeared in the high grass. She bit you! Tiger bit you! Stelzer lay flat on her side, gasping for air. The deep wrinkles on her forehead showed that she was in tremendous pain. Don't die, please, don't die. You must, you must be brave now, pirate. I, I, I must keep still. I, I have to stay here. Go, go back to the farmhouse. Go and get help. No, Stelter, I'm not leaving you alone. Please don't die. Go now. Run! Pirate was running through the paddock along the track they had left in the grass on their way to the boulder. His eyes were filled with tears. Everything in front of him was blurred. A long journey lay ahead of him. He needed to run faster. Stelzer will die within three hours. How long will it take him to get to the farmhouse? Will he make it in time? Faster, he told himself. Faster! Every minute counted. Please, please let me fly. He prayed, pushing his body off the ground while he was running. And as he spread his wings, he lifted off as if an invisible hand had picked him up. He was now gliding in a smooth line, feeling the tips of the grass stems stroking his wings. But all of a sudden, he started to drift. He lost his balance as he tried to flap his wings and he was starting to tilt, slowly at first, from left to right and back again. But suddenly he toppled and eventually spiralled out of control. Like a deflated balloon gone wild, he plunged into the grass. To his surprise, he landed right between Buddha, Ajax and Hoover. You're here. I knew you'd come. Well, we stick to our promise, mate. We told you that we would follow. Stelzer, we must help her. She's going to die. She was bitten by a tiger. Where is she? Back there at the boulder. You could see the shock in Ajax and Hoover's face. Buddha kept his cool, though, and told everybody what to do. We must take her to the hospital. Ajax, you are the fastest runner. Go back to the farmhouse and get the master with his ute. In the meantime... Hoover and I will go to Stelzer. She needs us to comfort her. Pirate, you find the kid kookaburras. We need their help. But the I kookaburras have... must find Tiger. The veterinarian at the hospital needs to know what kind of snake she is. This is very important. This is crucial. Only then 
and he gives Stelzer the right treatment, the right anti-venom. But the kookaburra. They not... must deliver Tiger to the hospital. The faster, the better. The kookaburras know where it is. Everybody, do it now! Ajax had already run off. Buddha and Hoover rushed towards the boulder. Only Pirate stood back. He was confused. He was frightened to look for the kookaburras. How could he ask them for help? What if they bullied him again? Buddha looked back and yelled at Pirate. You can do it! I know you can do it! Go! Now! Run! This probably is a real cliffhanger. Can Stelze be saved? Find out in the next episode of Top Dog Podcast. If you can't wait that long, you have the opportunity to actually purchase the whole audiobook Pirate the Barking Kookaburra. You will find more information on the website bubenberg.com. Pirate the Barking Kookaburra is also available as ebook and paperback. The website again www.bubenberg.com. And that's it for today. You find Top Dog Podcast everywhere on the net or on your favorite podcast portal. And remember to leave a comment that will alert others that we exist. You can also write to us if you wish, Adrian at topdog.space or visit our website www.topdog.space where you find many, many more episodes. I am Adrian Plitzko. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.